Take your Bibles and let's go to Isaiah 63 and 64. Now we're walking through the book of Isaiah and our theme this year, all year long, has been walk this way. And uh, I have been so blessed. I have learned so much. I remember studying this um, more than 30 years ago in an institute class, and it seemed so far away. It, it just seemed like how could this have any significance or relevance uh, to my life. And, and I'll tell you what, it surely, surely does. I want to ask you a question. What would it be like if God came down into your heart? What would it be like if God came into your life? What would it be like if God came into our society? You know, that's what revival really is. That's what God wants to do. Our theme here today is gratitude, and gratitude that leads to revival. You were made to be in God's presence, and when you're not in God's presence, you're miserable. When I'm not in God's presence, I'm powerless. I'm exhausted, and, and the solution to almost every problem, I'm, there, maybe there's a problem the presence of God is not a solution for, but I think every solution can be solved with the presence of God. I want you to see this in verse number 15 of 63. Isaiah 63 in verse number 15. Look down from heaven and behold the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. And here Isaiah is inviting God to look down from heaven. Jump over to... Uh, chapter 64 and verse number one. And it says, Oh, that thou is, let's read it together. Thou wouldest rend the heavens and thou wouldest come down. So look down and come down. And that's what the invitation here is. God, I want your involvement. God, I want your blessing. And today, as I stand before you, that's what I want. I want it for me. I want it for us. I want it for you revival that comes from the presence of God. Now, we're going to outline chapter 64. I want to present to you several points, and hopefully you can get those down, but also the illustration of chapter 63. Now, chapter 63, in verse number 7, I want to show you the gratitude, the goodness of God, and God is good. It says, I will mention the what? The loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. Obviously, two times in the one verse, God is kind, God is loving, and it's active, and it's present, and it's toward us. This week is the celebration and the beginning of festivities that will continue on as we kind of launch the Christmas season and the Christmas spirit. And it all starts with a very, very important element, and that is the attitude of gratitude. We have an epidemic in the world and in our nation, an epidemic of stinking thinking, <laughs> an epidemic of ingrates, an epidemic of, of people, and this includes me and you, 
that think we deserve more, that want more, and are unsatisfied. You know, if you can get people that think they deserve more and want more and things that uh, they have are not enough, you can sell them some more stuff. I took a little bit of uh, marketing, and um, one of the, the primary elements is you have to talk people out of what they have before they'll buy something new. And so I want each of us to sign up for the new iPhone 25 here this afternoon. We have to continually be upgrading. And in order to upgrade, you have to, you have to find out and discover that what you have is inferior, insignificant, that you've been robbed and you have this wounded spirit. I think America not only has this psychological problem of I want more, I need more, I deserve more, I believe that there is a spiritual oppression going on. And this spiritual oppression is, maybe we could call it a wounded spirit, that you hurt me, and I deserve more. And this week is the remedy. This is the week where we look to God and we say, God, thank you. Now, the verse that I showed you is Isaiah 63 and verse number seven. And it mentions this loving kindness and the goodness of God that he has poured out, he has bestowed upon us his great goodness. But I want you to know the context of this is the vengeance of God. Let's pray before we go further, and I want to present to you three specific truths as we look at these two chapters. Father, we love you. You are good, and you have been so good to us. We want to cultivate gratitude in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, first of all, we need to admit, and we do admit, that we have, we have had some bad attitudes. We have had an attitude that we deserve more and we get that wounded spirit and start complaining and whining and belly aching. But Father, we, we're so thankful. Help us and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. The first point I want to present to us today is the presence of God. You need, I need the very presence of God. Isaiah 64 and verse number 1 Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens. That is, God, uh, open up the heavens that thou wouldest come down that the mountains might flow down at thy, what's the word? Presence. That is, when God is near, things change. With this presence of God, we enter into this victory. We are in this little micro-series here. Uh, we've talked about in Isaiah 60, a new day, a new life in 61. 62 brought in a new name and our identity in God. And now today, our victory, living in victory. What is the secret to living in victory? Well, number one, it is the very presence of God. We must practice the presence of God. Well, what happens when we have the presence of God? The mountains might flow down at thy presence. Mountains melt at the presence of God. There's probably some mountains in your life right now. Mountains of unbelief. Maybe mountains of bitterness, resentment. Maybe mountains of faithlessness. And you're saying, how can I get through this? How can I get over it? Well, my friend, there's no other solution but the very presence of God. Mountains melt at the very presence of God. Look at 
Verse number three, when thou didst terrible things, which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. Now we're going to see how this all happens, but realize the presence of God makes the mountains melt. But also, it makes sinners shake. That is, the nations tremble. Look at verse number two. And when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, and that the nations may tremble at thy presence. The presence of God makes nations tremble. The nation's knees begin to knock. The tribes of the earth and of the nations tremble at the presence of the Creator, God. And that's what we need. You know, all the atheism and all the uh, problems in our community would be melted away, would be eliminated just with a little bit of realization of who God is. Psalms 99 and verse number one, the Bible says, the Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. Now, my friends, every coin has two sides. There's the love of God. And the Bible says that God is love. But it also says that God is a consuming fire. And that's the other side of God. You don't have a coin without two sides. You don't have the whole equation. You don't have your mind wrapped around something unless you see the multiple complexity of this. Every situation has multiple angles. 1 John 4, 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. But Hebrews 12 New Testament, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. See, God is holy, and he's righteous, and he's perfect and clean and true. And you can't have a perfect society and environment without a perfect leader, and that is God. You see, all of creation is meant to glorify God and to bask in his presence. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were thrust out of the garden, lest they live forever in a state far from God, in a state that is fighting against God's holiness. See, death is actually a blessing if there's a new birth. And Christ died to give us a new birth so that we might be united with God. And God wants us to be completely united with him. Now, people get the first advent and the second advent confused. There's two separate times that the Messiah comes. You see, the first time the Messiah came in a manger. The second time it will be in the great millennium. The first time Christ came, the Messiah came, he was transported around by Joseph the carpenter. But the second time it will be with the celestial horse. The first time he was seen by shepherds. The second time it will be by the sinners and the rulers of the world. The first time he came as a redeemer. The second time to rule and to reign. The first time he was rejected. But the second time he will be respected. Amen. 
The first time he came as a lamb, and the second time he will come as the lion. The first time he came to suffer, but the second time he comes to smite all those that would stand against him. The first time is called the first advent. The second time it's called Armageddon. There was an interview this week about the the threat of war and uh, situations escalating possibly between uh, China and Taiwan, possibly the United States of America at a later date, but then other countries in between New Zealand and Australia and getting involved. Uh, I watch Australia fairly close because it gives me a little window and an insight to what smaller nations are seeing as threats. And this Chinese diplomat said in this interview, if there is a threat and if these other nations uh, interfere with the goal and direction of China, there will be, and he said it three times, Armageddon, Armageddon, Armageddon. Now, what he meant was there's going to be war and it's going to be fierce. It's going to be big. And everybody understood that. But what he doesn't understand is this, is Human war fighting against each other, that's not Armageddon. Armageddon is when God fights against man. Now, if you're fighting against a world power or a greater force, you're in trouble. But nothing like when you try to fight against God. And that's actually what Isaiah 63 and 64 is all about. When Jesus came to earth the first time, it was to inaugurate the acceptable year of the Lord. And we looked at that and just glance over there, Isaiah 61 and verse number two, maybe just up here on the board, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Now this verse is tied in line with what we already spoke of and how God um, God will reveal two great things, the Redeemer and the one that rules and reigns. And this comma represents 2,000 years. If you were to read a, uh, an entry in a journal, uh, many times they will say, in the year of our Lord, and it's in reference to the birth and, and the years and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, he stood up and he read that passage from Isaiah 61, and he opened the book, the scroll, and he read it, and he read everything but this phrase, and the day of the vengeance of our God. And then he sat down. And instead of everybody saying, wow, this is amazing, they were angry. And then he gave two illustrations about how God loves and cares for other people. And the people were, they were furious. As a matter of fact, they drug the Lord Jesus out of the synagogue and they drug him up to a hill and they were going to throw him off the hill. And the Bible says that he went right through, miraculously, he went right through the midst of them and escaped. Why? Because Israel is looking forward to this day of the vengeance of our God. Have you ever got mad at the wickedness that goes unchecked in the world? Have you ever thought, how are these people getting away with this? What is going on? Well, in Jesus' day, the people, his people, were held in oppression by the Roman government, and it seemed like 
Somebody should do something. We need the Messiah to rise up. And people were saying, Jesus is the Messiah. And they were looking, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Until he skipped this line, the day of the vengeance of our God. And they said, we don't just want an acceptable year of the Lord and blessings and good things and forgiveness and help for the world. We want vengeance. Matter of fact, we want vengeance before the comfort. And that's what the world struggles with. You see, when he comes the second time, it will be the climax, the day of the vengeance of our God. I want you to glance over to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. And I want you to see this. Isaiah 63 and verse number one. It says, Who is this that cometh from Edom? Now, it takes a little bit of study, but I'll cut right to the chase. Uh, Edom is representative of the nations that stand against Israel. And that's why it is absolutely vital that the United States maintains good relationships with Israel. Because we don't want to be part of the goat nations, we want to be part of the sheep nations, those that respect and honor Israel. Isaiah 63, this is the beginning of Armageddon. That is the war and the fight that God leads against the enemies, his enemies of Israel. Who is this that cometh from Edom, that is coming back from the enemies of Israel, with dyed garments from Basra? Edom means red, Basra means the pressing of grapes, and it's the capital of Edom. Who is this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? Who is this magnificent warrior? And then the answer comes from himself. This is God. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And this is Armageddon, now complete and he's coming back victorious to set up his kingdom to rule and to reign. Now, there's very key things because oftentimes God's people foolishly want to get involved in the fight and carry out the vengeance themselves. And God says that's forbidden, and we'll see it in the text. The Bible proclaims very clearly, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And so we must be very careful that we don't get involved in trying to carry out the vengeance of God. We are to carry out the acceptable day of the Lord and not get involved in the vengeance of the Lord. Look at verse number two, and we're just going to walk through these first six verses. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? And so here's the question. Okay, you're the righteous one speaking in truth and rights and majesty. Why are you red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth the wine fat? And it's, it's a picture of the gathering and the harvest of grapes and somebody that would trample these grapes. Isaiah 63, and verse number three now. I have trodden the winepress alone. This is very key. God is saying, I'm doing this. You are not to, to create some sort of holy war to carry out my bidding because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. I have treaded the winepress alone and of the people there was none with me. That's pretty clear. Now this is prophetic. Israel right now is living in a time of peace, although they are living in wickedness and Isaiah's main thrust is to stand on these streets and this is an actual picture of a street there in Israel, possibly where... Uh, 
Isaiah would have stood and proclaimed these truths that the, the nation that was living in peace but in wickedness was going to go into war. And this war that he's describing here is way beyond anything that they said could understand. This is the Armageddon from the valley of Megiddo. None with me, for I will tread them in mine anger. Wait a minute. This is not speaking of grapes. This is speaking of nations and people. This is horrific. And trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiments. Listen, nobody's getting away with anything. God is keeping good records. And you don't need to keep good records of all these things and all these atrocities. Don't journal all your pain and all your hurt. You can release it. You can, you can just walk away from it knowing that nobody's getting away with anything. God will take care of it all. Verse number four, for the day of vengeance is in my heart. And this is the passage that was referred to in Isaiah 61. This is the very part that Jesus skipped when he spoke in Nazareth at the first advent because there's a 2,000-year gap. That's the church age that we live in right now. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. This is speaking of the great millennial reign where God will reign and rule for a thousand years in Jerusalem. Verse number five, and I looked and there was none to help and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, who did this? Mine own arm, this is God speaking, brought salvation unto me and my fury, it upheld me. This is something that God does. This is God coming with his white horse to do this. In verse number six, and I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Now, as we look at other nations, and we're a nation, and we're a sovereign nation, we're, we're trying to defend ourselves and arm ourselves, and we look at what they have and their um, uh, their direction and their goals, and we're uh, calculating our strength and our ability, and we say we need to put more money over here and more emphasis over here. We need more manpower. We need to store up this and, and all these sort of things. But that's not Armageddon, one nation fighting against another. This is God coming down and saying, guys, it's all done. And he tramples like grapes because there is no withstanding the creator of man. I want to give you a cross-reference, and this is every bit as, as gross and as horrific and as terrifying as it seems, every bit. Revelation chapter 16, this is where we get that name, Armageddon. Revelation 16 and verse 16. So if somebody was to say, hey, where do we get that name, Armageddon? You would say, Revelation 1616, notice the last word. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, what is it? Armageddon. That's where we get it. That's where man's final stand against God is. And what a foolish stand it is. Now I'll just go over a few more chapters to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, and look at verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a what? A white horse. Now, this is not the White House. This is not the White House. This is not America. This is God doing 
uh, what, what God has planned to do. And when man tries to enter in and do such things as this in the name of God, and nations have tried to do that, they go too far and they get in big trouble. Behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Is God a man of war? And the answer is yes, but it's in righteousness that he judges and makes war. See, no man is going to judge and, and enter into righteousness any more than his own moral perfection. And so we're all flawed and we're all biased, even though we try not to be. God is the one that is perfect and true. Look at verse 12. His eyes were as a what? flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth came, goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite who? The nations, that he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the second advent of the Messiah that is uh, ushered in, introduced with the battle of Armageddon. Don't get Armageddon confused with the, the battle of Gog and Magog. There's three things you need to know. First, the day of the Lord is a 1,000-year day. It starts with a great battle. It's called Armageddon, which enters into a 1,000-year perfect rule of peace and righteousness. At the end of a 1,000 years, rebellious man somehow finds a way to be unthankful, ungrateful, and rise uh, to rebel against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that's the battle of Gog and Magog. And they come together, and yeah, they're defeated quite easily and quickly. This is the presence of God. What happens when the presence of God comes? Mountains melt, sinners shake. It was July 8th, 1741, before our nation had its constitution and its great leaders, that revival was in every hamlet of our nation. Jonathan Edwards stood up and proclaimed in fields, for no church could hold him, and he would stand on, these, on this little pulpit that was basically a, a meter by a meter, and he would stand in this little uh, platform, and he would proclaim with leather-like lungs for hours, an hour, two hours, and he would preach to crowds upwards of 20,000 people without amplification. And Jonathan Edwards was famous for preaching the message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And this sermon emphasized human depravity and God's unfathomable mercy. He was never able to finish that first message the first time he preached it, July 8th, because it was interrupted with weeping and shouts of agony and fear as people rushed forward to repent of their sins and trust Christ. This was the beginning, the, the roots of our brand new nation that would soon declare independence and write their constitution. It was forged with the hammer of revival.
It was not only interrupted with open weeping and repentance, but there were tremendous shouts of joy as people began to rejoice in how good God was. And it was his title was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. His main passage was, your foot will slip in due season. That is, you're not going to get away with your wickedness forever, but God will hold you accountable. I want to show you something else. Go back to Isaiah chapter 64. Now, I said it's the presence of God. The mountains melt. The sinners shake. But I want to show you something strangely positive in the middle of something so terrible, something it is the worst travesty in all, in all the world and in all time. And number three here on our first point, the presence of God, is the righteous rejoice. The mountains melt, the sinners shake, and the righteous rejoice. Look at verses four and five. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, Neither the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for them that wait for him. That is, God is so good, you've never heard anything so good as what God has. You've never been able to even comprehend. You've never seen it. It's never even entered into your heart the things that God has for those that wait and long for him. The righteous rejoice. Look at verse number five. Thou meetest him. So that's following the the thought of the presence of God. Thou, that is God, meets with him. Does God meet with you? God wants to meet with us. God wants to get close to us. You remember when Adam had done whatever it is that was wrong, he partook of that fruit, and, and he comes in the garden and Adam and Eve had hidden themselves. They'd made the, uh, the fig leaf aprons and they hidden themselves. And, and God comes in, Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, where'd you go? God wants to meet with you. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. The righteous rejoice. Rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways. What are you remembering? Are you remembering God and his righteousness? Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned, in whose is continuance, and we shall be saved. Here in the middle of the wrath of God, God comes to meet with those that rejoice in righteousness and remember God's rules, God's ways. The righteous rejoice. My wife and I were missionaries in New Guinea. We had two children, Marshall and Emily, and they were just little kids. And, and uh, we were way back in the jungle. We had uh, f- flown into uh, a town called Mount Hagen, a very small town, about 20,000 people in the highlands, about 6,000 feet in the jungles of New Guinea. And then we had drove several hours, many hours back into the jungle, and we were in a very remote, remote location. And it was just our first year. And we were praying about what God would have us to do. And I got a hold of a book on revival and the presence of God. And it was written by a man that worked with D.L. Moody. Now, D.L. Moody was an uneducated guy that was just a powerful speaker and God used to bring a huge revival into Chicago and, and many other areas. 
But then there was a, a very affluent man by the name of R.A. Torrey, Reuben Archer Torrey. And he was born in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is just across the, the river there from um, New York City. And he, his dad was a, a banker and an attorney, and they were very wealthy, and he was educated. Uh, I believe he went to Yale when, when he was still a teenager, and just an amazing thing. But R.A. Torrey began to uh, preach and to teach, and, and it was a very wonderful time for me. It was my first few months in New Guinea. And of course, we're in New Guinea. We want to see the hand of God uh, move and work. We want to see God do something. And I was fearful that we could spend years and decades in New Guinea and, and see nothing but what I could do and inferior things. And I began to read about revival. And R.A. Torrey said this. He said, I have a theory, and I believe it to be true that there is not a church, chapel, or mission on earth where you cannot have revival, provided that there is a little nucleus of faithful people who will hold on to God until he comes. And he continues, I give a prescription that will bring revival to any church or any community or any city on earth. And he gives three things. First, let a few Christians, they need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. I remember sitting at a little desk that my brothers and I had made back when we were just teenagers out of some trees that we had cut down. And I was sitting there and my, my wife and, and our two babies were in the next room and I was praying and I was crying and I had a little candle lit there. We didn't have any power, of course, way out there. And it was just a little candle. It was a beautiful, warm situation. And I began to cry and I began to weep. And I said, God, I want to get thoroughly, thoroughly right with you. And I began to cleanse my heart and I began to search my soul. And I wrote several letters of apology. And I think I wrote four or maybe it was five checks of reimbursement to some people that I had wronged. As I began to search and to squeeze my soul, I wanted to get right with God. And I remember just the, the joy that flooded my heart as I was reunited with the presence of God. But at the same time, there was a fear there was a fear and a re realization that God is great and powerful and mighty and filled with majesty. And I think that's what's missing. Sometimes we just want the love of God and don't realize that God is righteous. The righteous rejoice. So right in the middle of all of this Armageddon story, there's this element of righteousness that they're rejoicing. You know, there's four levels to thankfulness and appreciation. The first level is a terrible level. It's the level of the complainer. And you've met this person. They can always gripe. They can always complain about every single thing. I heard about a senator that just could not be pleased, just could not be pleased. And, and so he went into the, uh, uh, the cafeteria there at, at the Senate House and and he walked in and he was just grumbling about everything and they had fixed this meal for everybody as they were going to vote. And he was like, I don't want this. And the, and the cook knew about him and he was like, okay, what do you want? He says, well, I want two pieces of toast. I want one white bread and one wheat. And I want you to put butter on the white, but not on the wheat. And the cook just kind of, okay, no problem. And I want two eggs 
one fried and one scrambled and a glass of orange juice and coffee with just a touch of cream. And the cook said, yes, sir, right away. And the senator's like, yeah, we'll see about that. And the cook brought it out. And everybody's just kind of watching. Everybody's heard this. And uh, they brought it out. And there's the eggs. There's the toast. And the senator looked at the eggs. And And the cook said, what? He said, you scrambled the wrong egg. (laughs) Always finding something to complain about. I've been at that level. You've been at that level where you're just complaining about everything, every single thing. My friends, that's the first level. The second level is ingrates. And an ingrate is somebody that they're not necessarily complaining about everything, but they're not grateful. They're not thankful. They're just, they're just taking all that you give them, and they kind of feel like they deserve it. They're ingrates. I think America has that problem right now. The third level, and this is where we should press into, is grateful for the good things. I want to encourage you to be grateful for the good things. Take this week and be grateful for the good things. But the fourth level, and this is what you should seek, is grateful in all things. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 20. I want to show you this. Ephesians 5 and verse 20. Giving thanks always for how many things? All things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Somehow... Christians, we need to get to that supernatural level of gratitude to overcome our stinking thinking and enter into the attitude of gratitude. We're talking about a new victory. You know how you enter into victory? It's with the presence of God. When God comes in, He melts the mountains. He makes the sinners to shake. As a matter of fact, He tramples down the sinners. And we need the, the mighty Creator to come into our life and trample out the sins of our own life and bring the righteous to rejoicing and those that remember the rule of God, giving thanks for all things. You know, there's a legend about some boys that were wandering in a field that found the devil's seed barn and they entered in there and there were many bags of seeds and all these things but there was a giant sack of ingratitude a stack of sacks of ingratitude of seeds there and on it as they were snooping around in the devil's seed barn it said this seed grows in every soil except for the grateful heart and opens the way for innumerable evils Take care of your heart. Don't allow ingratitude in. Be grateful. Let the light of thanksgiving and thankfulness kill off the weeds of ingratitude in your life. And men and women, this week, create a culture in your home with thanksgiving. As we enter into the Christmas season, it is vitally important that we start the Christmas season with thankfulness and gratitude. There's a reason. The day after Thanksgiving or gratitude or appreciation, the spending spree begins. Be thankful. Be grateful. Well, we've we've spoke for a little bit uh, about the presence of God and how the fear of God should lead us to great community with God and the people of God. 
But there's some problems, and Isaiah 64 brings out several problems, three specific ones that we want to develop, and I've got to hurry up here just a little bit. Look at verse number 6, Isaiah 64 and verse number 6. Here's the problems surrounding the revival that God wants to give and the gratefulness and thankfulness that we can have. Verse number 6, But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are as filthy rags. This is saying, as we're walking through this chapter, there's a problem, a big problem. That is, our, our righteousness has been ruined. It's filthy. As a matter of fact, in, in the Hebrew, I'm told that this is the word for an infectious, contagious disease. This would be something that a leper would wrap his wounds in. <laughs> that is obviously the problem. But God sees the, not the bad things we do, the good things, the righteousness. And the righteousness here is like a rag. It's filthy. It's infectious. It's contagious. We are corrupted by sin. Not only our, our ruined righteousness, but look at our fading faithfulness and how we decay. And we do all fade as a leaf. We're in the middle of fall. The fading is a, is a natural thing. And this faithfulness fades away. In the fading process, the green leaves turn yellow or orange or red. And then they dry and they decay and they are blown away. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Us, well, we're the, we're the leaf that has faded. And our iniquities, this is the problem, our sin, our, our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. We've talked about our righteousness is contagious, but our sin, our iniquities, twist and, and rend uh, the truth of God and the righteousness, the goodness of God, and it takes us away. We're corrupted by our sin. But look at verse number seven. Not only are we corrupted by our sin, we are comfortable in that sin. Have you ever seen somebody that maybe um, misfortune has come upon them and you want to help them and, and you want to help them get out of the problem? But the real problem is they're comfortable in that problem. They identify with that problem. That's us. Verse number seven says, And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that's God's name, and stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. The people are just sitting in their sin. They're comfortable. They're corrupted by sin. We saw in verse six, but verse number seven, they're comfortable in their sin. I told you about R.A. Torrey. He said, first, let there be a few Christians. They need not be many. Get thoroughly right with God themselves. This is the prime essential. If this is not done, the rest, I'm sorry to say, will come to nothing. Then he said, number two, R.A. Torrey said this, second, let them bind themselves together to pray for revival until God opens the heavens and then comes down. The third thing, he says, let them put themselves at the disposal of God to use them as he sees fit in winning others to Christ. That is all. This is sure to bring revival in any church or community. I have given this prescription around the world. It has been taken by many churches and many communities, and in no incident has it ever failed, and it cannot fail. 
That is, get thoroughly right with God. Pray, bind yourselves together. And then number three, put yourselves at God's disposal. Don't be comfortable in sin. Don't get sedated by sin. The last part of verse number seven shows the third step here, and that is we are consumed by sin and has consumed us because of our iniquities. There is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. Our, in, our iniquity makes us feel a million miles from God, and indeed we are. I want to say this. Not only is God our only hope. Listen, God is our greatest threat. Now, God is our only hope, and I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I love God. But notice the very wording of this text. For thou hast hid thy face from us. It's not we hid from God, which does happen, but God hid from us. And hast, that is God's actively doing this, consumed us because of our iniquities. It's God that allows this destruction to come, even promotes this destruction. So we've looked at the presence that brings revival and the problems that inhibit revival, but look at verse number eight as if we get to our third point, prayer. The, this is the prayer that hastens revival. It's a prayer that recognizes God's sovereignty. But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou art potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. God, you're the dad. You're the father. You're the boss. You made me. You're the potter. I'm the clay. Lord, direct me and show me. This is R.A. Torrey's third point. He's saying, just give yourself to God. Use me any way you want. So many times we look at God as as fire insurance or the spare tire or the Santa Claus or the bellboy. Oh God, help me and do for me. Friend, God created us for his glory. Recognize God's sovereignty in your prayer. But look at verse number nine. Recognize and request God's mercy. Request God's mercy. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we request, we're asking, we are all thy people, we're asking for mercy. Recognize God's sovereignty and request God's mercy. Verses 10, 11, and 12 brings the last thought. That is, remember God's glory. How can I see revival in my life? Is there hope for my family? Is there hope for me? Yes, it's with the presence of God that the mountains melt, the sinners shake, and the righteous rejoice. There's some problems. We are corrupted by our sin, by our filthy righteousness and our fading faithfulness. But we're comfortable in our sin and we're consumed by our sin. And there's prayer that brings revival. The first is we recognize God's sovereignty. The second is we request God's mercy. And the third is right here. We remember God's glory. The holy cities are a wilderness. And you can see Isaiah saying prophetically that it hadn't happened yet. He's remembering God's glory. He says the holy cities are a wilderness. They shouldn't be. 
Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praise thee is burned up with fire and our pleasant things are laid waste. Our last verse. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? God, we're dependent upon you. You say, what brings revival? What do I need to focus on this Thanksgiving? How do I overcome my stinking thinking and my feeling like I deserve more and I'm, I'm an ingrate? How do I do this? Oh, I need God's presence and I need to remember and rejoice at his goodness. I need to realize that sin corrupts and I can get comfortable in it and eventually it will consume me. And I have to recognize God's sovereignty. I have to request God's mercy. And I've got to remember God's glory. It's not about me. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God and His glory and His righteousness. God wants to do great things. God's not done with America. God's not done with you and me. God wants to do wonderful, marvelous things. Will you be one that believes, that hopes, that leans in, that says, God, I want this new thing. I want this new victory. And I will rejoice and I will be thankful because, God, it's about you and your holiness and your righteousness. And maybe you're looking at injustice around and you're saying, how can this be? There's a day of vengeance coming. Let God's strong arm take care of things.